I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part four in the series, The True and False Self, Filled with All the Fullness of God. All of us have an idea of the person we wish we were, an image we design with our hurt and our insecurities. And when we consider what the world sees when they look upon us, we hope to God they see the image, the avatar. And maybe there are shades of the real us in it, but maybe what it really is, is an imposter. In the summer of 1997, I bought my first David Bowie record. In those days, the only real way to listen to music, of your own choosing anyway, was to drive to a record store and buy it on CD or cassette. I was 14 at the time, so money was hard to come by. But when I could scrape together $15, I often blew it on new CDs, having most often only one single to go on. So you'd see a video on MTV or you'd hear a song on the radio and you'd figure, eh, I'll give it a shot. And the album that I purchased was called Earthling. Really, I was buying Earthling for one song, and that song was called I'm Afraid of Americans. This wasn't my first rodeo with David Bowie. Like many kids my age, I first met Bowie in Jim Henson's 1986 fantasy film Labyrinth, an important formative childhood movie. One reason among many that my son Beck's middle name is Henson and my daughter Isla's middle name is Bowie. And then... After Labyrinth, I met David Bowie again years later in 1993 via Nirvana, of all bands. My brother and I sat down one evening and watched Nirvana's MTV Unplugged in New York performance on cable television, and like many people, we were taken by their cover of The Man Who Sold the World. And I remember when they played it, my brother and I were confused, and we were like, we don't recognize this Nirvana song. And my mom, who was in the room watching with us, spoke up and said, this is not Nirvana, this is a David Bowie song. And we said, the Labyrinth guy? And she said, yeah, and we're like, oh, how do you know that? Are you into David Bowie? And she said, no, I never got it. That was her, (laughs) so I couldn't get it. Her friends in college had loved Bowie, and she just could not get into it. Too weird, she said. Too weird, you say? (laughs) My interest was piqued. And then I inched closer in 1995 when Bowie's song Heart's Filthy Lesson played over the end credits of David Fincher's excellent neo-noir thriller Seven. Again, what's this? Oh, that's David Bowie, the Labyrinth guy? But... I wouldn't finally fork over the $15 until Bowie began touring and performing with Nine Inch Nails. And since I bought everything that Trent Reznor wrote or performed or produced or even made a guest appearance on, whatever, I bought the deluxe copy of Earthling that had the Nine Inch Nails remix of I'm Afraid of Americans. Now, to pull this off, a few of us had to pile into the back of my brother Patrick's 83 Mustang. Right, yeah, it wasn't impressive at all. In fact, I, don't, I still don't know much about cars, but I remember at the time, uh, people would ask him what kind of car he had, and he'd be like a Mustang, and they'd be like, woo, and he'd be like, no, 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 it's not cool. I'll go ahead and tell you. And then we drove 45 minutes to Media Play in Savannah, Georgia. Now, you might not know about Media Play because there were less than 100 stores in the entire country. It was essentially a Best Buy copycat, bigger, with more stuff, and with stiff competition, like Best Buy, It didn't really take long for all 89 media play locations to look like this. But not before I bought that album in 1997 and embarked on the challenging journey into Bowie's discography. Now I say challenging because Bowie rarely made the same kind of record twice and he never made the same kind of record three times. And the guy has 26 studio albums, my God. And I'll pull off this kaleidoscope of evolving genres and styles Bowie created personas. 
Essentially, fictional characters through whom he wrote and performed per album cycle. So you had the space alien, Ziggy Stardust, probably the most famous, but then you had characters like the Thin White Duke or Major Tom or Halloween Jack, and the list goes on. This I found most interesting of all. The idea of an artist transforming themselves at will into something else, another person, an idea, an aesthetic. And it's a fine idea, aesthetically, artistically. But when you don't like yourself, when you desperately dislike yourself, being someone else, someone else you do like, or at least think you do, and who is liked by others, at least you think they are, well, that sounds pretty nice. And for many of you, maybe all that sounds entirely unrelatable, things like personas and self-hatred and media play. (laughs) But the scriptures... And with them, hundreds of years of spiritual formation, writing, and thinking argue that all of us are actually divided people. All of us have a true self, and all of us have an imposter, a liar, the false self. We are in an ongoing series, the true and false self, filled with all the fullness of God. And tonight is about the latter, the false self. Each and every one of you, just like me, has a lying doppelganger whether you know them or not. It's not an idea I made up. The New Testament calls this liar the old self. Writers and theologians have called it things like the shadow side and, as I have, the false self. And if all that sounds like kind of modern psychobabble or self-helpy, you may be surprised to learn that the earliest church fathers argued for self-awareness as essential to discipleship to Jesus. In 400 AD, Augustine wrote this, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Around the 12th century, the Dominican scholar St. Catherine of Siena said, when we are who we are called to be, we will set the world ablaze. Around that same time, German theologian Meister Eckert wrote, no one can know God who does not first know himself. And just to prove my point, I'll give you a special treat. You ready for this? I am going to quote a famous church figure with whom I have very, very little agreement. He is something of a theological nemesis of mine. His, his name's John Calvin. Now, yeah, yeah, get ready, brace yourself. The reason that I'm quoting him with all this fanfare is that Calvin was very famously not self-helpy, not mystic, not Catholic, not flowery to say the least. And even grumpy old John wrote this in his giant infuriating sleeping pill of a book, Institutes Institutes of the Christian Religion. He wrote, our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But these are connected together by many ties. It is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. So there you go. Even a broken clock, right twice a day. My point point is that across the spectrum of Christian tradition, many different expressions of church and theology for hundreds and hundreds of years, pastors, writers, thinkers of the faith have argued that it is absolutely crucial for every disciple of Jesus to learn who they are and who they are not. But many of us live as someone we are not. Brennan Manning calls that false self the imposter, writing this, Imposters are preoccupied with acceptance and approval. They overextend themselves in people and projects and causes, motivated motivated not by personal commitment, but by fear of not living up to others' expectations. 
The false self was born when, as children, we were not loved well or rejected or abandoned. The false self buys into outside experiences to furnish a personal source of meaning, the pursuit of money, power, glamour, sexual prowess, recognition. The imposter is what they do. The imposter prompts us to attach importance to that which has no importance, clothing with a false glitter what is least substantial and turning us away from what is real. The false self causes us to live in a world of delusion. The imposter is a liar. Within each and every one of us is another person, a shadowy, misshapen imitation that masquerades often as the real you. And sometimes we know it. Sometimes we see the imposter. We get wise to their tactics and tricks. More often, though, we don't. Why begin a sermon with all sorts of trivial details about the past, musicians and TV specials and conversations with your mom about rock stars? Because we actually build our imposter early on when we're very young. Life, circumstance, chaos, trauma, family of origin, all work to complete the imposter to give it shape. And for as long as I can remember, there was a me I wanted to be. It wasn't built from any theological paradigm or informed by anything God said. It was a veneer, an avatar. I beheld complicated rock stars and troubled writers and eccentric artists, and I spent years subconsciously cobbling together a theoretical me, imagining how this me would be seen and understood by others, working to embody him. I'm not the only one who does this, and it's been this way for a long time. So let's look once again at Genesis, the second chapter in the Bible. Let's start with Genesis chapter two. You guys okay? You awake? Still with me? Great. Oh my God, whistling. Well, I don't know if I can live up to that. I'm going to do my best. Peter, did you hear that whistle? What did you think? (laughs) Uh, Okay, Genesis chapter two, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, 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 the Garden of Eden, to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, "You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die." So simple enough. Turn over to chapter three and let's read once more the text Jan presented just a few minutes ago, Genesis three, verse one. She read this, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then their eyes were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. From the very beginning, we were invited 
to trust God for all we need, and from the very beginning, we didn't trust Him. And we have been sowing fig leaves ever since, covering ourselves, hiding. In his book, The Gift of Being Yourself, David Benner argues, everything that is false about us arises from our belief that our deepest happiness will come from living life our way, not God's way. Although we may say we want to trust God and surrender to his will, deep down we doubt that God is really capable of securing our happiness. And so we build the imposter. The Catholic monk Thomas Keating calls this avatar a personal emotional program because it is, in essence, a plan that we map out to be happy and comfortable and content to get what we think we need in life. It all sounds very sinister and manipulative, but really, it's a survival strategy. Early on, before most of us can even remember, we learn something about the effectiveness of lying, not just to get our way, but to protect and defend ourselves from what we're afraid of. It happens so fast when our brains are still small and supple, we're confronted, and we learn that there are times when we can twist, warp, or altogether negate the truth to avoid something we'd rather not face. I didn't do it. I didn't say it. It wasn't me. And in doing so, we sow the first fig leaves. I'm not the victimizer. I'm the victim. I'm not the villain. I'm the hero. I'm not me. I'm someone else. So, David Benner concludes, what we get when we choose a way of being that is separate from God is the life of the false self. With the self that is created in God's likeness rejected, our false self is the self we develop in our own likeness. This is the person we would like to be, a person of our own creation, the person we would create if we were God. But such a person cannot exist because he or she is an illusion. And so we are at war with the old self, the false self, the imposter. Now, turn one more time in your Bibles to the letter we call Romans in the New Testament. Feel free to consult the table of contents. If you're new to the New Testament, don't feel bad. It is new. If it goes uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans, thanks for the laughter there. Cam, did you laugh at that? Not even a little. He didn't even smile. I could see his face. A scowl. Let's read one of my favorite pieces of Paul's writing, Romans 7 beginning with verse 15, Paul writes this, I do not understand what I do. What I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it. Sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is my sinful nature. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it. It's the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of my sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin." Now, 
Romans is a letter written by a master apprentice of Jesus. I mean, this guy wrote most of the New Testament. That's pretty impressive. And here he is, a man at war with himself, torn between a very real, very authentic desire to do good and then the experiential reality of doing evil. And scholars debate whether Paul is narrating as his redeemed self or kind of narrating as his experience prior to Jesus. But really, either way, he's describing something deeply common to the human experience, a war between the two selves, the battle against the false self. In David O. Russell's 2004 indie comedy, I Heart Huckabees, Jude Law plays a shallow, superficial executive called Brad Stand. Brad Stand is winsome. He's handsome and confident and connected. Brad Stand knows country pop superstar Shania Twain. In fact, that's right, the very same. In fact, Brad Stand famously pulled a fast one on Shania. During a promotional event, uh, big shot executive Brad Stand was asked by Shania herself to provide tuna sandwiches, the only thing that Shania wanted to eat. And see, she hates mayonnaise. She, was, she once attempted to eat a chicken salad sandwich, and she threw up. That's how much she hates mayonnaise. No mayo. But Brad Stan offers Shania Twain chicken salad sandwiches anyway, and he charms her. He assures her that this is what she wanted, the all-important tuna sandwich. He claims to hate mayonnaise as well. And then he eats two sandwiches in front of her just to prove his honesty. So Shania eats the chicken salad sandwich, and lo, she likes them. Brad Stan made one of the world's biggest music stars change her mind about chicken salad. And Brad Stan tells this story all the time. All the time he tells it. That he tells this story to demonstrate just how winsome and handsome and confident and connected and clever he really is. He tells the story to keep people laughing, to keep himself distracted. And Brad Stan has no suspicions of his own inauthenticity. Why would he? He is that charming, powerful executive that commands respect and admiration, the man who tricked Shania Twain. Until, finally, Brad Stan is actually made to listen to a recording of the false self, one that he denied existed until it blathered on at length across days and locations, the same posturing story again and again, and he visibly sinks at the sound of it. What do you think would happen if you didn't tell the story? How am I not myself? Maybe I think of myself as smart, or maybe I find ways to project what I think about myself to the world, or maybe what I want to be is funny or sophisticated or quirky or rugged or well-read or adventurous or unique or networked or prestigious or educated or creative or loving or gracious or wise. And maybe to make those things true, I act like they are. Even when they're not, I pretend. I sow fig leaves. And social media, of course, is the playground of the imposter, a place where the fraud can stretch its legs and strut its stuff. And within this digital landscape, all we like about ourselves, all we wish were true of us, is embellished and paraded before others doing likewise. And all the stuff we'd rather not deal with, why put that online unless it benefits the veneer, the mask? It's a place where one can be an activist without really doing anything, or where the socially stunted and immature can be witty and hilarious, a place where the shut-in is a socialite, where the nobody is a somebody, a place where those too lazy and afraid to deal with their own lives become expert critics of society and culture and politics and, of course, the church. 
a place where the one whose life is consumed by chaos and avoidance and arrested development can pose and preen, put together, picture perfect, doing just fine. And it is all a sham. It's a wash. It's a dead museum, a fantasy football game where by one consent, we all agree to pretend to keep the imposter happy and fed. But eventually the fig leaves will unravel. And when my garment of fig leaves comes apart, I panic. But how do you know? If you're so good at fooling ourselves, if we're so good at fooling ourselves, how can we see the truth of who we really are? The false self is a void. It requires a veneer to manifest in the first place, a host, a husk to populate. Because the false self is terrified of nakedness, it demands attachments, screens, talk, possessions, accomplishments, bolstering, relationships, information, distraction. Without them, the false self is naked, and when it is naked, it dies. For some, the imposter is terrified of silence. It cannot sit still. It cannot be alone. It has to move and keep busy. So it works and it gets out of the house, and it fills its days with errands and adventures and things because it cannot bear the crushing stillness and silence of solitude where it might be exposed for the fraud that it is. For others, the imposter fears relationships, togetherness, vulnerability, accountability, because the imposter knows that in those places it will be disrobed and laid bare, so it hides It withdraws from community, from intimacy. It bails, it flakes, it hides at home with screens and sleep and the cover of aloneness. How can we recognize the imposter? You're not gonna like this. Here comes the deep water. The imposter gives itself away with defensiveness. What most bristles your sensitivity? Do you prickle when your expertise is called into question? Is it because you are an expert? Doesn't everyone know this? Isn't it obvious? How could someone suggest otherwise? What if someone accuses you of pride when you are utterly convinced that everyone knows you for your great humility? What if someone suggests that you and all your progressive forward thinking have become the new fundamentalism of your parents' generation? No, 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 not you. The bad guys are like that, the fundamentalists, the closed-minded, black and white, not you. You're on the right side of history, man. Hasn't everyone seen your Instagram stories? And just as the false self internalizes and defends and becomes defensive, it also projects its own pettiness outward. What most bothers you about others? Your so-called pet peeves. Am I particularly critical of disorganization or undependability or laziness? Is it because these things remind me that what I want most is to be a put-together, accomplished, disciplined person? Does the failure I observe in others expose the lie of my veneered self? And one truly disturbing aspect of this precarious act is that it can masquerade as activism and justice, 
In 2020, as the world was reeling from the murder of George Floyd by white police officers, much of the church began a complicated, divided conversation about racism and injustice. Our church was one of them. It was culturally a painful, chaotic season, a season of shouting matches, revealing defensiveness and pettiness of camps and individuals at radically opposite poles. And for many in positions of power or privilege, any inference of either thing, position or privilege, that they could possibly be skewed by their status or their position or their race, their whiteness, that there could be ignorance, even dormant racism within, well, it sent them into a clamoring fit, a defensive tantrum of unbelievably unfeeling closed-mindedness. Because if those things are wrong, if I'm morally compromised, then I am not the bastion of moral and religious superiority I have always believed myself to be. I am the religious right, dang it. I can't be the cultural bad guy. I'm the cultural warrior. But it worked the other way as well. Of course, in those volatile months, all kinds of ridiculous things were being said and done. But I also watched as other Christians and churches demonstrated humility and vulnerability in their willingness to learn and repent and change. And wherever an honest attempt was made at reconciliation, there rose up the progressive moral police, almost always white millennials, to tear it down with correction and critique. You're not doing it right. Whatever it was, it wasn't being done the right way. Not as right as me, because I'm the true ally. There's no better ally than me. And all my petty scrutiny of everyone else becomes a preening, self-aggrandizing spotlight on me because I am the progressive left, dang it. I can't be the cultural bad guy. I'm the cultural warrior. Because I'm terrified someone will realize that really, I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. I'm as complicit as everyone else. I'm a white yuppie from Portland or Beaverton or Camas with little to no stake in the struggles in which I am somehow never ceased to make myself the star. I have a couple of friends who are attracted to members of the same sex, but who are yet submitting their entire lives day in and day out to the way of Jesus, and thus embracing lifestyles of singleness and celibacy for the sake of righteousness, faithful discipleship, over and against their wirings and orientations. And they tell me hilarious stories about how often straight individuals insist they are being oppressed. One of these friends of mine sighed and said to me over lunch one day, there is nothing worse than a straight ally. Because here my friend is in the actual trenches of obeying Jesus' radical command to deny himself, the one with real skin in the game, and here comes someone with no experience, no stake, no empathy, and says, hey, you're doing it wrong. What makes the armchair activist, the entitled yuppie quasi-ally who knows better than the oppressed what oppression really is? Why do we do this? Why are attributes in others such an affront to me. We are deeply troubled by any reminder that there is a lie within us. Any reminder of the false self, this petty fragility often uncovers the lie that we believe about ourselves. Defensiveness, pettiness, And finally, our compulsions do the same thing. The urge we can hardly resist. 
Everyone is compulsive about something, usually about what we believe we most need, cleanliness, family, career, learning, fitness, accomplishment. Well, we are often compulsive about things which are themselves fine and good, but that become elevated and idolized and thus form the dense exterior of the false self. Abby often tells me that I need another creative project, like I need a hole in my head. Being, Being creative and productive are good things, But endless tinkering can also reveal something true about my imposter. I want to be a prolific creator. I want people to say, wow, look at all the things that Josh does. Isn't he so smart? Isn't he so creative? And I want to be satisfied by my work. And on some level, I believe the lie that ultimate satisfaction will eventually be uncovered in making things. That at some point, I'll sit back and sigh and say, now I'm enough. But I won't. Because really, maybe I'm not the person I create and project. Not really. And maybe you're not as beautiful or smart or funny or well-adjusted or mature or happy or jaded or snarky or gracious as you've always assumed. And don't get me wrong, God creates people and uniquely gifts them with talent and vocation, and he wires you with personality and calling. It's not that no one is special, it's not that no one matters, or that deep down we're all so fake and horrible. Maybe you are really good at something, and maybe you are super smart or super pretty or whatever it is, but that is not fundamentally who you are. Maybe what you are What you really are is the beloved of God. Not for all your flapping and flailing and posturing and pretending and not even in spite of it. You are the beloved because you are the beloved. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes, He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. To be holy and blameless in his sight, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now that word my Bible translates as chose is a compound Greek word with a preposition. It just basically means to speak forth. As in, when I invited Jan to read from the scriptures this evening, I called her forth. Now Paul... Jewish man, scholar of the Torah, was hearkening back to Genesis, God's creative speaking voice that summoned galaxies into existence. And listen to this. Paul says, before then, before let there be light, before the foundation of the world, you were chosen, beloved of God. Robert Mulholland puts it this way. Here is the ultimate ground of our identity. You are a beloved child of God, spoken forth out of the heart of God's love before the foundation of the world. The union of a man and a woman that brought about your physical conception is only the secondary cause of your being. The primary center of your identity is the heart of God's love before the foundation of the world. Not Josh's fluffy, pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking, but the core doctrinal truth of the scriptures revealed by God himself and spoken over you. You, with all your broken phoniness and without it, right now, here in this moment, with whatever secret, whatever sin, whatever story, whatever suspicions and doubts, you are unchanging and always the beloved of God. God. Yes, 
you, you most doubting, you who has already dismissed yourself from this conversation, you who thinks to themselves, sure, that may be true for someone else, not me. Yes, you. Why do we struggle to believe this? Why do we struggle to trust that this is so? Start by asking yourself the all-important question, how am I not myself? Or put an even scarier way, what if the way you imagine yourself isn't really you? Not in a negative self-talk, low self-esteem kind of way, but what if some of the things you believe about yourself aren't the real you? And if you need further convincing that this is possible, that we're not always who we think we are, just listen to a recording of your own voice and see if you can handle it. It's like a rodeo. How long can you hang on? Can you handle the truth of what you sound like? There are people always say, oh, that's not how I sound. That's a, it's a recording. So I, I, uh, I host this podcast about movies with a few of my friends. My wife, Abby, is a regular guest on the show. She's hilarious. She has a segment called Abby's Audit. People love it. You may not have guessed this if you don't know her really well, but Abby is easily one of the funniest people I have ever met, both on purpose and on accident. Um, but Abby cannot stand to hear even one second of her voice on a recording. If she overhears me editing the podcast and a, and a bit of her talking comes up, she's immediately like, you know, like, turn it off, like, angry. And that is, I really believe, as great an analogy as any for what many of us experience when we get our first glimpse of the true self in all its naked glory. We cannot stand it. The truth is, Confronting the real you can be a difficult and scary thing. It has been for me. One thing that matters deeply to me is authenticity. I am painfully allergic to anything I perceive to be phony, and the mere suggestion of a possible false self presupposes that I am, in some sense, phony. And the truth is, I fashioned my false self from an early age by cleverly exploiting and in many cases twisting attributes of my God-given personality. We all do this. For as long as I can remember, I wanted to be unique. I don't know why exactly, but at some point, uniqueness became the crown jewel of my false identity. I was a little kid, and someone said, hey, this little kid knows a lot of stuff about dinosaurs. That's different. And I relished it. And if I couldn't be unique for overtly admirable or traditionally praiseworthy qualities, then I would be unique in my willingness to rebel against the status quo in the uncompromising discipline and dedication with which I rejected norms and that I deemed were beneath me. And whether I was a son or a friend or a student or an artist or a musician or a writer or a pastor, whatever, I wanted to be different. Really, I wanted to be special. If I wasn't unique, who was I? And the brilliance of the false self is that since it was assembled with shards of actual personality, I could feel comfortable saying, this is the real me, sort of, anyway. And one of the great struggles of my life was that all along, I knew there was another me underneath it all, and I hated that guy. And God would come to me with gentle kindness, and he would ask me to come out of my hiding place. And I just wouldn't do it. Many years ago, when Abby and I were dating, I broke my front teeth out with a microphone. <laughs> yeah. It was just days before I was going to get to see my long-distance girlfriend. We'd been counting down the days, and then on some stage in Philadelphia, I accidentally slammed a microphone into my mouth and shattered my front teeth. 
Uh, now, I don't think of myself as an exceptionally vain person, but having your front teeth reduced to shards is probably pretty humbling for just about anyone. It <laughs> looks funny, and people see it right away. And I really liked this girl, and I remember telling her on the phone that it had happened, and Abby, in her totally sincere, unpretentious way, told me, oh, well, I'm sorry your teeth broke, but I am no less excited to see you, if that makes you feel any better. And I remember sitting in a van, running my tongue over the jagged ramparts of my tooth stumps, and thinking, sincerely, how can I hide this? Should I not talk? Could I keep my hand over my mouth at all times? I felt vulnerable. I felt embarrassed. I felt very ugly. For years of my life, God came to me as I hid my face and invited me to uncover that which I feared was so ugly. And it has taken me a very long time false starts, setbacks, highs and lows. But now I can see that what I wanted most, I already had. I wanted to be something special, something known. What could be more significant and more intimate than being God's beloved son? And sure, there are things I do. There are things that God asks me to do. So maybe I'm a pastor also or a writer or even something truly and deeply meaningful like a dad. I am. I am those things. But over and above and before all of them, I am God's beloved son. Not because he dressed me up and made me acceptable, and not because I can write or teach the Bible or raise children. I just am. I am, am God's beloved. And though, like any relationship, my intimacy with God can grow and change and evolve or else decompose based on relational decisions that I make, my status as the beloved, is unchanging. God can't help but love me. It is who he is. He loved me when I wouldn't love me, and he loves me now. And that is who I am, who I really am. But oh, how easily I forget, how easily I am entangled by other identities, even very good ones that I elevate to the place of ultimate. What about you? How confidently can you say tonight that before all other titles and monikers, over them all, the banner of my truest self reads thusly, I am God's beloved daughter. I am God's beloved son. Like the apostle John, the disciple that Jesus loves. Who else would I try to be? Why would I hide? From what do I sow the fig leaves of the imposter? And thus, we often return to that haunting question, how am I not myself? Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to speak and to reveal to us the truth. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church.